It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode of Dr. Stu's Podcast. Check out the blogs. Check out the Facebook page for my pal, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, who's here for podcast number 66. Congratulations. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> I always congratulate you. Yeah. I think every, every show's a victory. Yeah. You know every, what I mean? It's funny you should mention 66 because it reminds me of uh, Route 66, which is a famous route that goes through the desert uh, here. Anybody who's seen um, the movie Cars has probably been given an exposure slightly to Route 66. The reason it's kind of funny is because a friend of mine is just moving back from Wasilla, Alaska. Oh, wow. Sarah Palin country. That's right, where she'd been working for a few years. And she's moving back to, uh, Can- I think, Kansas City, I believe. Right. Uh, forgive me, Rebecca, if I got it wrong. But um, anyway, they were driving home. So they're driving home from Alaska, and they're driving through you know, the Yukon territories hmm. and down through northern, uh, southern Canada into Montana and that sort of thing. And I get a text from her because she's Facebooking it, so I know I'm following her progress a little bit. That's kind of one of the wonderful things about social networking. You feel like you're on the trip with them. Yeah, I get a text from her somewhere where she's somewhere in the Yukon or something that says, so... I can't get Dr. Stu's podcast. What's the matter? Did you change your website? <laughs> okay. It's like it's a radio station. She can't tune so, it no, in the Yukon. She, she's listening to Dr. Stu's podcast as she's driving through the beautiful uh, uh, Canadian Rockies. I love that. And listening to my podcast. So that uh, is a very cheerful uh, moment for me to think that at least someone somewhere in Upper Canada is listening to Dr. Stu's podcast. Oh, now, folks, you hear that, so shoot Dr. Stu an email at askdrstu at gmail.com <laughs> and tell him just in the subject line, just where you're listening. You know, Buffalo, New York, write it in the subject line, askdrstu at gmail.com. Emails, by the way, uh, can be and are sometimes a big part of Dr. Stu's podcast. Dr. Stu reads all of his emails. If they're interesting, oftentimes we use them on the show as conversation starters. So that's very helpful. If you have a question, ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com and if you want to send me some spam don't do it don't do that and go to the facebook page too now i have to say something i've known dr Stu for at least 15 years right yes it feels like 15 years at least i've known you yes maybe it feels like 55 years to you it was before 9-11 i know it was yeah i know it was and we well we're yeah you can mention it we're recording we're recording today on 9-11 we'll get to that in just a moment but i know you well yes you're a dear friend yes i love you you're family to me you know that when I yes, see, you even gave me a shout out on your radio program. I morning. did this morning. I, I said uh, we were talking. About, oh, you know what we were talking about, which I want to talk no, about. No, because I wasn't listening. <laughs> oh, well, how dare you? I wasn't in my car yet. Yeah, Sorry. you're like that woman in the, Rebecca in the Yukon. I couldn't get Brian's radio show yeah. in the Yukon. Well, I, I figured out why because I, for, I wasn't in the car. So it, yeah, well, yeah. that right, okay. But uh, we were talking about uh, you know babies at advanced ages. There's a woman in the news today, and we'll get to it in a moment. She's 51. She's having her first child. So that came up, and I said on on our radio show here on AM870 in Los Angeles that um, my friend Dr. Stu talks about how the age of first times mom is steadily increasing, how in your 30 years you've seen it increase. Yeah, I think so. At least yeah. at least in our population on the west side of Los Angeles. You know what, let's, let's talk about it now since we're on it. Uh, my colleague Ben Shapiro, with whom uh, I do the show along with Alicia Krause, he took a very aggressive position against it. He said that it was irresponsible uh, and, uh, you know, and, and was, his wife's in medical school, by the way, he's not a doctor, and, but, but she certainly will be. And he was uh, very sort of a passionate, he was passionate, uh, against the idea of having a baby for the first time so late in life. And I just reminded and gave you a shout out that, that you've, I've learned from this podcast, Dr. Stu, that it is more 
common uh, than, than it certainly was when we were kids. My parents had me at 25, and I was the last kid they had. And by the way, you'd stop after me, too. <laughs> so <laughs> You were a cute baby, Brian. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I wasn't a bad-looking right. kid. I, wonder, I don't know what happened, but I was a good-looking kid. So, yeah, let's take that on for a moment. 51. I, I remember uh, 63. I remember a lady in New York who's actually related to Curtis Sliwa, the talk show host, the guardian angel, a friend of mine. His sister, I believe, had twins at 63 or something like that. Uh, is there an age, Dr. Stewart, does become irresponsible? Oh, how, how would we, uh, you know, you and I, Brian, would never judge somebody based on those sort of things. And, and if you're asking the question, is it irresponsible for a 51-year-old woman to have a baby, then you have to ask the same question. Is it irresponsible for a 51-year-old man to father a child? I did ask that question right. on and, the what, air. and what was Ben's response to that question? Uh, yeah, uh, he sort of acknowledged that. That was, hey, Brian, pretty good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why is it irresponsible for a woman? And it is, is you know, we're both, you know, it, it, is, it is more difficult when you're older to keep up with toddlers. It's definitely more difficult, and so, but it's not irresponsible. It really, you can have irresponsible people who are 22 years old and having children, or 25 years. Irresponsibility is probably ageless. Let and me so, add- I, again, I would, I would not say that it's irresponsible. I clearly, this is something that uh, she, she definitely wanted. So it's not like this was an oops at age 51. I mean, at age 51, if you're trying to get pregnant or if you get pregnant. Uh, it's either a miracle or it's or it's because you've been doing uh, fertility workup and that sort of thing. So it's something that she really wanted. And for her at, at, and in her life, I don't know this woman. I don't know anything about the story even, but I would never call her irresponsible. I wouldn't either. How, how significantly, I mean, when you get to, I mean, we've talked about 35, we did a show about that recently, a podcast. When you get into the 40s or you get to this story in the news this week, 51, how significantly, we talk about risks all the time, medical risks, and you state very eloquently all all the time, how oftentimes these risks are overstated and make anxious unnecessarily a mom or a mom-to-be. At 51, at 45, how significantly increased are pregnancy risks as the age gets higher? It's a fair question. Yeah, well, th- well certainly genetically, there's an increased risk of something genetically being wrong with the fetus. And when you get up in the high 40s and 50s, you're talking about you know, uh, three to seven or eight or nine percent risk of your baby having a a chromosomal abnormality related to your age. But once that's proved that you don't have that, then the pregnancy will progress pretty much normally, other than the fact that you have to understand that 51-year-old women are more likely to develop hypertension or diabetes than 21-year-old women. So you're more likely to have uh, pregnancy-related diabetes or pregnancy-related hypertension in a 51-year-old. Some people believe the 51-year-old uterus may not contract as well. So I think you're going to end up with a higher induction or C-section rate. Uh, The way the medical model uh, is sort of uh, intervention intensive, I think that somebody who's 51 who had fertility treatments to get pregnant, they're probably not going to let them go very far overdue. So they're going to either be induced or they're going to end up with an elective cesarean because as opposed to any other baby, which is, I think, ridiculous. This right. is supposedly a premium baby because it's her one chance to have a baby. I mean, all babies, to be honest, are premium babies, and we don't, don't do things differently, but that's sort of the, the mentality that's discussed. You so, s- go ahead. You, you said, Dr. Stu, a few minutes ago, you said that, look, at 51, toddlers are tougher to handle at 51 than 31 or 21 or 28. Of course they are. So let me ask you. Uh, and then I always look, Brian, I always think, uh, you know, okay, I'm 51, I'm having a baby. Let's see, when she graduates high school, right. I'll be 69 years old going to the PTA meetings. Um, 
Everybody's going to think I'm their grandmother. Yeah, well, my rule their of grandfather. My rule of thumb always has been that I believe we talked about Tony Randall years ago. You know, fathering kids at eighty. You know, the actor, the late Tony Randall. I've always said, and I think you and I talked very early on, maybe in the very early episodes of Doctor Stu's podcast over a year ago. I've been at this a while, and I'm proud of that. The uh, that I think you should do the math, and I think at a bare minimum. The numbers should dictate that at least you'll be around for the high school graduation. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. I mean, I guess you can't really run your life based on that because no one knows what tomorrow is going to bring. But I think, I think it certainly that has to come into consideration. But everybody's life is different, and it's not for you and I to sit here and judge. And and for as far as Tony Randall goes, I mean, you're right. It, it's wh- not for us to judge, but human beings do judge all that. Oh, we yeah. hear something and we draw a conclusion. Right, and I and I'm not that kind of person that. It's not judge. You know me. I'm fairly judgmental when it comes <laughs> me, to things. Me too. But but you're, you're right. On these issues, we're sort of living. And like I'll live. judge Tony Randall in a way, and I'll say, you know, I don't know what his motivation was, but I'm sure that the woman. I have he, an idea. The woman's motivation. Well, who knows how she got pregnant? Yeah, it that's not true. Have been through uh, actual right. intercourse. Right. Uh, but the woman's motivation was to have Tony Randall's baby. Mm. Now I don't know if it was financial for her or if she just loved Tony Randall and wanted to have his legacy, knowing that she that he wasn't going to be living much longer. And and I don't I don't consider that to be a selfish act on her part. Uh, and what, what his motivation is, is only he knows. Or Yeah, interesting. But one question I want to ask you, too, because we have obviously, listening to Dr. Stu's podcast, so many moms and so many women who want to be moms or planning to be moms or have found themselves, you know, months away from being a mom and it wasn't planned. So so I ask if, if, uh, if a pregnant woman is 51, and as you said, toddlers are tougher at 51, so the baby arrives and, uh, and there's all of that going on. Have you found in your practice in caring for clients and patients over the years, Dr. Stu, that if mom is older, is there any correlation between advanced age of mom and, say, postpartum depression? You know, I haven't noticed. I, I haven't noticed that. No, I haven't. I haven't noticed that at all. Because could the could the struggles after the baby? Hey, look, I'm I'm, I'm 45 and I'm chasing around a toddler. It's a little different than 25. I wonder if after the baby arrives, there can be some more challenges. You know, who who knows? Because sometimes people at 45 are are you know have lived life a little bit. They have life experience. Maybe they're better adjusted. And maybe they've already been going to therapy for 20 years and they understand themselves better and they're less likely to have depression. I don't know that age is related to depression. I do know that, you know, when we talk about these older men um, fathering children, uh, knowing probably full well that they're not going to be around to see these children grow up, Mm. um, that 20, 30, 50 years ago would have been, you know, uh, sort of scorned upon taboo almost taboo yeah it would have been something that would have been uh yeah yeah people would have looked down on it raised eyebrows yeah that would have been a problem but you know today and maybe i'm not saying it's a good thing but today the single parenthood is is almost becoming the norm and so therefore you know you can't judge it with the same way that people who may have judged this thing in the 50s and 60s and 70s may have judged do you find when we talk about single you're you're so interesting to me because i find my a million thoughts you know flood my head here when you talk about single parenthood i wonder Uh, And I know I I have a very dear friend. She's a single mom. She has twins and she has a beautiful son and a beautiful daughter. And she's a great mom. I wonder if when if mom is single and there there's no uh, man or or no woman or whatever the sexual orientation may be. 
I would, it would seem to me, an armchair guy, so I'm the layperson on Dr. Stu's podcast. I'm not the doctor, newsflash. I think people know that. It would seem to me that if you didn't have a husband, if you didn't have a partner to lean on, then there almost has to be a surrogate for that partner. There's got to be a really close friend or a family member or your own mom or dad. Do, do people, is it human nature to sort of want to substitute another person in your life for the traditional partner or husband role if you're a single mom? Yeah, of course that is. I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, we are we are a social uh, species, and to be alone is not our natural state. It's very difficult to be alone, even when you have no children. But raising children alone is extremely difficult, especially if you're trying to work and have some sort of life. And that's why it's really difficult for women who have small children to be able to establish and find another relationship. I mean, I, again, I, I have a small sampling because I only talk to the people that I talk to every day, but I have a lot of women who are divorced. Their kids are maybe 9, 10, 12, sometimes a little younger, 5, 6, and they come in and they're, and they, they're complaining because, and rightfully so, that it's very difficult to find someone to be with them because if they're 40 years old with a 12-year-old and a, and a 9-year-old, you know, no 40-year-old guy really wants to be involved with that. The 40-year-old guy wants the 30-year-old woman. So they're, t- they're talking about the 50 or 60-year-old guy who wants the 40-year-old woman, and the 50, 60-year-old guy doesn't really want to be raising children again. I'll share something. Uh, a friend of mine that uh, is a single mom, different from, from the uh, woman I was speaking about a moment ago, uh, I, we dated for a while, and uh, good friends dated for a while, and uh, she's a single mom. And, and I think you're right. It's a challenge. Uh, we're still friends. It's a challenge. It was a challenge for her to find a guy because, well, for example, and, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, if, if we were intimate, I couldn't spend the night because she didn't want the kids seeing, you know, Brian or some guy waking up with mommy in the morning. Right. Right. And, and, I, and I had great compassion for her because I thought, wow, that's got to be hard for her. Because yeah. who wouldn't want me hanging around and all the, night? And the, and the woman, that, <laughs> she, woman can't just go away for the weekend. Right. And she's also looking at this guy not just as somebody to have fun with and dating material, but she's looking at him also as, can this guy be a good father for my two little kids? And that's, that's a, a lot of pressure to put on somebody. Even if it's unspoken, it's it's clearly it's, it was there. there. It was I know in my experience, it was there. I was always evaluating. Wow, what does this kid think of me? You know, what does she think of me with the kid? And I didn't even I wasn't interested in in being the father of that child. It, and the relationship certainly had not progressed to that point. Right. Right. So yeah. So your question. Uh, I don't even know what your question was, but <laughs> well, it's just I know she had a tough time having a traditional relationship. If traditional, forgive me, I don't want to offend anyone uh, one's values. If, if traditional is having somebody spend the, spend the night who's not your spouse, right? But, but that was what she desired, but it couldn't happen for matters that were far more important than me and, and her kudos, child. And you know, and kudos to her for her standing up and not having a revolving door that her children are watching different guys come and go. Uh, I I, I got to give her credit for yeah. the fact that she. Uh, has standards to set for her children, and I did too. It's, I admire it's hard, it. you know. You got to come over after they're asleep, and you got to leave before they're awake. And yeah, uh, and yeah. she has needs that need to be met. Sure. And what is what's what's she supposed to do? You know, a man. It's a little. It's um, you know. It's true. It's but it's it's easier. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Doctor Stu's podcast. Doctor Stu is uh, loosening up here now because we're chatting like, like the old pals we are. But when you came in here, I alluded to it. You know, a moment ago at yeah, the beginning of the yeah, podcast, yeah. I can read you like a book, okay. and you looked pissed off. You came in here, you looked frustrated, not with frustrated. me. Frustrated. Piss, pissed off isn't the wrong word. Okay, yeah, right. You looked frustrated. You had this. Your your lips were pursed. You had this look of you, and I said, "Oh, Stu, you know, not Doctor Stu, my buddy Stu." I said, "Stu is frustrated about something." 
I, so I'm asking you cold on the podcast, what's going on with you today? Okay. Well, it's a combination of things, but it started out over the last couple of days. I've seen a lot of new clients in consultation and I can't help but get frustrated because the stories they're telling me of the things that they're being told by their, their, their doctor are just, are just driving me crazy. And it makes it so, you know, it, it makes it so hard for me to keep my mouth shut and not just want to blurt out to these people, your doctor's an asshole. Your doctor's completely wrong. What he's telling you is completely out of left field. He's selfish. He, you know, she's uh, putting her, her own needs before yours. She, you know, her facial expressions, her scoffing at your, your questions. I mean, I, I, I often want to say to these people, you know, if you went to a restaurant and you got bad service and bad food, why do, would you keep going back there? People don't go back. But, but I also have to restrain myself to some degree, to remain professional and not try to undermine the relationship that this person has with this practitioner who's telling him the most stupid, absurd, wrong-headed, non-evidence-based information just to skew their counseling to get them to do what they want to do. Listeners are screaming now. Brian, ask Dr. Stu, what is this crazy information these uh, folks were hearing from their doctor that made you so upset? Okay, well, here's one. a midwife from Bakersfield called me. Uh, she's got two clients uh, who are due in the next month or so. Actually, one of them delivered today, as a matter of fact. And I saw this client a couple of days ago for no, for no particular reason other than because of the fear that was placed in the midwife by Assembly Bill 1308, which was the one that keeps midwives confined to taking care of only normal pregnancies. They're not allowed to do anybody who's 36 weeks and six days or 42 weeks and one day. They're not allowed to do breaches and twins. This woman in one of her previous pregnancies had a fetal demise. Mm. The baby died in utero prior to labor. All right. She, her backup physician, who's not really her openly backup physician, it's her secret clandestine double secret probation backup. Oh, uh, I didn't know it was that complicated. Right. Well, they can't, they're not, they don't want to openly admit that they're a backup physician, told her that it was absolutely fine for her to take care of this woman. And so the midwife asks him, could you put that in writing for me just to cover my butt? He says, oh, no, Mm. I can't put that in writing. So he's afraid to stand up for what he believes in. The fact is that a woman who had a previous fetal demise, if if the baby is fine when she goes into labor, the fetal demise has nothing to do with the labor. And so the labor is the labor, and she can labor at home. The baby isn't going to die in labor. The, The fetal demise had nothing to do with anything that had to do with labor in the previous pregnancy. It happened you know, weeks before that happened. Everybody knows that. And yet it's considered, well, it's high risk. So we can't have her in this category. So she has to send these people driving down from Bakersfield to spend money to come and see me to get a letter that she probably doesn't really need all because of the uh, California assembly bill and doctors unwillingness to stand up for what they know is right. That's one. A second one, a lady uh, who had a previous cesarean section all right. Her doctor told her initially that she was VBAC friendly. But now that she's 36, 37 weeks, she's starting to get the classic bait and switch. She's starting to do the classic thing. Well, you know, your baby's looking really big and I really think we ought to do your C-section. So I'm setting a date for you at 39 weeks. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why, why 39 weeks? Well, it's because if we wait longer, you could rupture your uterus, you know, mm, and all these mm. things and said, well, I don't want to do it at 39 weeks. I don't want to do that. I mean, and, and then when she says, I'm going to get a second opinion about possibly having a VBAC, her doctor rolls her eyes and, and starts 
you know, sort of scoffing at the idea that you're not listening to what I'm telling you. Doctor, how Stu- dare you? Yeah, let, let me ask. Uh, this is very, very interesting because uh, you describe yourself as having a tough time, sort of, uh, w- when hearing from from these uh, people you're caring for, these clients, uh, having a tough time keeping your mouth shut because you know you don't want to violate. We hear with the police department, certainly with Ferguson, Missouri, recently. My dad was a cop. The blue wall of silence. Cops protect cops. Is is the fraternity that uh, that consolidated? Is there that much solidarity among physicians that you really feel afraid when it comes to something about a a, a, a person's bring a, a person bringing their child into the world where you would feel that you have to bite your tongue? I, you know, it's troubling. That's frustrating to me. Yeah. You know, it's I, I understand professional courtesy, right? But. But what a tough spot you must be in then. Well, I can only put myself in, in, my, in my own experience. I can't speak for anybody else. But I, I can tell you that there, I don't think there's this fraternity of doctors because you know, unless you're in like a, a good old boy network, like if you're the, the good old boys at a hospital or if you're part of the academic part mm. of the hospital, mm-hmm. you may support each other, but you will, you will hang out to dry one of your colleagues if you get a chance to do it, oh, you will. Oh, yeah. How refreshing. Yeah, you'll under you'll <laughs> say things that that are undermined. The the most common reason why physicians are sued mm. in in America is another doctor. Another doctor tells them something that ang- angers them about their previous care. Tells the patient something that angers the patient about Correct. the care they got from the other doctor. And whether or not they, that the care was negligent or not is irrelevant. The other doctor pisses them off. You know. Trying to make himself as the second opinion or the new doctor look good, him or herself, they will often throw the other person under the bus. Okay, so with the cops, it's the blue wall. So with physicians, there's no white wall of silence, as in lab coats. It doesn't exist. No, there's the uh, the the wheels on the bus. Right, doggy dog. Going round and round. Right, and under the bus, doctors go from other doctors. Yes, and 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 the idea that this first of all, when we talked about her first cesarean section, right, this woman. I had to get the Kleenex box out because she wasn't even sure she needed her first cesarean section. Different doctor, so I'm not blaming the, it's not the same thing. But but she got in tears, and so she really wants to have this V-back. She's been planning it all along, and now getting close to term, she's getting this sort of what we the, what we in the in the profession call the bait and switch, where you've been told all along, that yes, you can do your V-back, yes, you can do your V-back, and now you start in the last few weeks finding reasons why a V-back isn't a good idea, mm. even when that's not the case. There's no reason this woman shouldn't attempt a V-back. And the fact that she was seeking a second opinion, from my point of view as a physician who feels comfortable and confident in my recommendations to people, I applaud somebody who gets a second opinion. I want them to come back to me with full confidence, knowing that what I'm telling them is a good choice and they've made the choice freely, not that I've coerced them into making a choice and thinking that they're, they're an idiot for seeking out a second opinion. Mm. And this is the kind of thing that's been going on a lot this week. There's just been a lot of that this week. Yeah, so that, that does a number on you at some point, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I yeah. mean, every day I see consults for VBAC or breach almost every day, or I get a phone call from a midwife in some part of town who says uh, that this is what they were told or someplace. I got a call from a midwife today in Yuba City with a similar question about something where the woman has, this is, the, this is a crazy one. Right. The woman has a bacterial infection of her intestinal tract at 20 weeks, 22 weeks pregnant. How common is that? It's not very common, but you know, you, she has like a four day thing with diarrhea and okay. we don't need to get more descriptive than that. She's sick. Right. So there, the, the midwife herself is having questions whether or not this is something that will affect her ability to have a home birth four months from now. 
And it's like, and it's like why, would you, why would you even question that? Why are the two even related? If she's still sick four months from now, then we can talk about it. But it's, it's gastroenteritis. It'll get better. She'll be fine. The baby will be fine. And four months from now, she, she, she can have her home birth. But that's but, a midwife asking but she, you. Yeah, Isn't that she's odd? She's concerned because she's afraid that this is something abnormal. And then the medical board will, somebody will report her and she'll come down the medical board. And we're, it's, it's like living in Nazi Germany where your neighbors are reporting you for hiding a Jew or something. I mean, it really is horrible. All of your frustrations seem to be, come from the, the medical establishment here, the tentacles of the medical board and government. You mentioned 1308, I believe it is, that we have talked about in the past. Uh, tentacles of all of this sort of bureaucratic stuff has been impacting you and hitting you pretty hard this week. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it right. did. Yeah. It did. And, and, there, and there's there's other stuff, too. Yeah. And I don't know how much we want to get into okay. other no, stuff. No, no. Look, I think we too. get it. I mean, I... It's, I, all, it's all professional. And yeah, I, you know, sure. No, I mean, look... I, I, I'll tell you, I had a I had a, a very good week this week because I got to spend uh, a seminar on Monday all afternoon with a wonderful Sarah Buckley. Mm. She's a physician from Australia who believes in uh, undisturbed birth. She's got another book coming out. Forgive me. Uh, the term is new to me. What is undisturbed birth? What does that mean? Well, undisturbed birth basically implies that human birth should be similar to mammalian birth in the way you treat a woman in labor. All right. In other words, three things that she says... Um, she, she gives this thing, but the, the three things that I took home from it is in labor, don't wake the mother, which means don't bother the mother. Okay. Don't take the baby, which means leave the baby with the mother. Right. And don't cut the cord or don't clamp the cord. Mm. In other words, leave it alone. These are the three components of undisturbed birth. That, yeah, is, in, that in a phrase, a is that a phrase that Sarah coined? I don't maybe, know. I think maybe. it's a name. I think okay. it's a name of her lecture she gives, and maybe her new book. Did you find her seminar interesting? Oh, well, I've heard her before, and she's fascinating and lovely. And then we all went out to dinner afterwards and had a lovely dinner uh, with some people. You know, some of the people there were were not as uh, gung ho about what we do, and so it was a really nice. And they were all physicians. There were, no, there were physicians, midwives, doulas, and. Uh, and Sarah and me. Do you right. find any, because we've talked about sort of politically, right? Uh, you know, you know, a number of, uh, you know, issues that deal or, or potentially can deal with, uh, with home birth. Do you find when you're having one-on-ones with physicians, with colleagues, uh, colleagues of yours, do you find that, uh, that, that headway is made, that you make progress on this concept of home birth, or do you think you're sort of at a stalemate? With, with uh, others, with physicians, with your colleagues. I think with physicians, it's a stalemate. I think every now and then, I think, I think what's happening is some physicians are beginning to evolve toward rethinking where, their position simply because they're looking at the numbers and outcomes and they realize that these things aren't very good. Mm. The average physician, however, is, as we've talked about many times, is immersed only in their own bubble of stuff. And in other words, they don't get exposed to this sort of literature there were no physicians there other than one other guy who's a very enlightened man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love you, Milo, um, that, that was at this seminar. Mm-hmm. This seminar would be great for physicians. Uh, Sarah is doing her best to try to get in at next, next year's ACOG conference so she, that she can present. She travels internationally? Yeah, she travels all over the world. She is a physician herself, and, and I'm hoping that she will be able to speak at next year's ACOG conference because this is the kind of thing that, that doctors don't normally get exposed mm. to. And if they don't get exposed to it, there's no, there's no way that they know what they're missing. Interesting. So when somebody comes out like me who says these sorts of things, <laughs> you, get, you get odd responses. I will tell you that, you know, I submitted a, a paper for publication. Right, on your first 100 home births. Right. Well, 
Uh, the first place I submitted it to, which just got emailed today, which is also piling on, pig piling on. I wasn't going to get to this today. That's okay. But I'm going to get to it because we, we still got have, time and I'm here for we you. We still have time. Um, <laughs> We're all here my for first, you. My first uh, submission got rejected. Okay. All right. And I, I quickly, before I, because I was late to come here, uh-huh. I wanted to read through some of the reasons that it was rejected. How could you not? Some of them, some of them are legitimate complaints about uh, this should be here, or you, you had too much of this, or you shouldn't, you know, you need to document where you got this information from, or you didn't reference this, and I get all that. At least that's nice. It's a, and we can take our time, that's a constructive rejection. There's criticism there that's constructive. Some of it's constructive, and some of it is, is in my opinion, rather what I would have expect from people who have no are so narrow-minded they don't understand it. Like, for instance, when I compare human birth to mammalian birth, as I've done many times on the podcast, yeah. one of the reviewers said, well, humans have evolved to, to walk upright, and therefore they're bigger heads and smaller pelvises, and therefore the C-section rate is naturally going to increase. You that, just, you this, just, is, this is the guy that's reviewing my thing, saying this. Thing. Right, right, right. Okay. Now, I mean... We didn't suddenly get bigger heads, and we didn't suddenly walk upright. But let me ask you a question here. Shouldn't that person's review be on the science of your data, not a judgment of whether or not home birth is appropriate? Well, they can't, res- they can't resist either. I mean, I get that, and, I, and I, I'm not, I have no problem with that. I mean, when I said something to the effect that, that hospital birth relies heavily on medical and, uh, uh, medical and, um, and technological interventions— uh-huh. The guy said, you, you made a statement there, but you didn't put a reference. Okay? Well, do I really need to put a reference on something that is so blatantly obvious? Right. right. I guess I do. Right, yeah. I guess that they... Well. See, that's almost like... That's like somebody who watches your show, your favorite show, like MSNBC, okay, which tilts way left, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. saying that, you know... And, some, and, and things are stated that are obvious to the listener or the reader or the viewer that we all get. It doesn't have to be uh, right. uh, referenced out. Right, right. I mean, you know, if and what I'm saying is, is that everybody knows that hospital birth relies heavily on medical and technological intervention. People go there because the machines are there. The machines are there. The anesthesiologists are there. The epidurals are there. The pitocin's there. The the ultrasounds are there. Right. The continuous fetal monitoring's there. Right. I mean, what is that stuff? Do I need to put a reference that says, oh, yeah, we have ultrasounds and continuous fetal monitoring? And, and That's frustrating, and I can imagine. Right. Yeah. For so, you. I mean, that's yeah, a critique of my paper because I didn't reference where I came up with that statement. And so, you know, and part of it says what's, it reads more like an opinion piece, and I get that. Mm. I get that, and yeah, but that, but when you talk about um, uh, discussion, yeah. the discussion section is basically, in my opinion, when you read discussion sections on any piece of literature, it is it is a time for opinion to be brought into place based on the data that you've presented. Interesting. We mentioned so that was part of my frustration when I walked in because I had sort of just read that, didn't have even time to look at it. I had to get in my car and drive over here. And I'm glad you, you saw it, it with, on my face. Yeah, I did. I can't hide that. <laughs> stuff. I'm glad you shared I can't it with lie. us. Yeah, that's why. That's why I've taught my kids. I might tell everybody, don't lie. Mm-hmm. You should never lie because you know what? You can. You always get caught, and you'll never. Then you, if you lie, you have to remember who you lied to and stuff. So, I wear. I wear it right on my face. I. I, I try hard not to. I try hard not to make a face when I hear a patient tell me one of these stories that wants to make me cringe. I'm probably not very good at it. I'm probably <laughs> they can see it through me, and I try to be more professional than that because I get mad at other people for doing it. But it's really hard when you're hearing this, this, some of the stupidity and uh, ridiculousness and uh, thick-headedness 
Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, that's okay. a nice, that's a nice, a nice way, way to put, put it. it. Right. We mentioned, and, and, and briefly here in the in the couple of minutes we have left, we mentioned that we are recording this podcast, number 66, Dr. Stu's podcast, here on September the 11th, the 13th anniversary, which is, always feels like the wrong word because anniversary connotes to me a positive thing, and of course it's a tragedy. I wonder, and I've never asked you this question, in your practice, was there a baby boom after 9-11? Oh, I, I, you know what? I don't no. know. That's uh, uh, right. This is, this is this proves that Brian and I never rehearse what we're going to say. We're like Regis and Kathy we, Lee, who never talked before the show. They yeah, went on the air, and that was the that charm was it. of it. And right. actually, sometimes when we start our podcast, we, we we start talking before our podcast, and we actually shut ourselves up because we say, you know what? This is good stuff. Let's just wait save it and let's do it online and see where it goes. Yeah, that's exactly and right. That's what really what we did today. Yeah, that is what we did today. So interesting. I, I you know, I would look. I, I, I want to look that up and see because I would think, you know, after nine eleven, uh, maybe we're, you know, because they. Talk Right after the blackout in New York, right the famous blackout. Yeah, well, that would have been June. That would have been June of twelve. And we. Oh, uh, okay, right. We right. have to look and see in June of twelve was what was the birth rate. If there is such a way of figuring that. Right, stuff but you out. didn't see like in your practice, you didn't. It wasn't detectable. You said, "Oh wow, look at this." No, 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 no. no. But again, I, I have such a small number that it would never be statistically. What season? What season of the year, in, uh, to, to your instincts, are the uh, is the, is the most popular for conception? You know what. It changes. Does it? It varies. I mean, there are some years we'll have like no births in October. And, and which would mean no, I'm asking when the No concept- sex in January. Okay. All right. And then, and then right. there are some years where I'm busy in October. So I, I, don't, I don't think that there's uh, any last uh, question. correlation. Um, last question. I'm August 17th. When do you think my parents conceived? Is that Brian? when you were due? Was August seventeenth? I was born on August seventeenth. So you, you would basically take you. Subtract, I think they had sex on Thanksgiving. You, am you I right? Subtract three months and add seven days, technically speaking. So you go back to May twenty fourth. About May twenty fourth is when. Uh, no, the year before. No, no. Oh, I, wait, I'm, I'm born, born. Wait, I got that backwards. Okay, I got that backwards. I'm born August seventeenth. Did yeah. my parents have sex on Thanksgiving night? Doctor Stu, yes or no? Uh, <laughs> is there a chance? I'm August seventeenth. Yeah. yeah. It's possible. It's possible, right? That's what I always think. No, minus no, it would have been about November tenth. Oh, okay. So maybe when they bought the turkey. Yeah, minus three months plus seven days. Yeah. <laughs> November tenth. I went that I did that backwards. Okay. So November November tenth was about when they had sex. Not a crazy Halloween party, unless costume you were, party. Unless you were premature. Uh I was a C section. If you were premature, you know. right. then it could have been Thanksgiving. Then it could have been, all right. Hey, you know what? Thanks. I learned something on this program all the time. Thank you, Dr. Stu. You're welcome. Yeah, and I'm, and good talking to you as always, my friend. I'm glad that we had a conversation. Thank you, you You're better than any therapist. Well, <laughs> Jenny, Jenny, forgive me. You're better than just about any therapist I've ever had. Because I'm actually smiling right now. I feel pretty good. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Go to iTunes. Subscribe to Dr. Stu's podcast so you never miss an episode of Dr. Stu's podcast. And Check I'm out. definitely going to be resubmitting my paper to some other journal. Yeah, we're so. getting this published. Absolutely. Yeah, we're getting it published. Check out the website, drstuespodcast.com. Click on all the available links to you. Thanks for joining us. On behalf of Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Dr. Stu's Brian po- and I both know that rejection is good for the soul, right? It, yeah, it makes, it, makes you a stronger person. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've been rejected. But- Why do we fall down? So we can learn to pick ourselves back That's up. That's ex- Amen. <laughs> there you go. We'll leave it at that. See you next time. Next time.